Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Using the gospel of Matthew this year, the Christmas season, to think about the birth of Christ, our Lord, God made flesh. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through verse 25. This is God's word. He gives it to us, his people, for our good. Let us give our attention to its reading. For the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. From where I stand in, in, in my life, of course, you never know what the, the future is going to bring. You can't be, uh, be haughty or proud about where you are. But from where I stand in my life, it seems completely crazy, absurd to not believe and to trust in Christ. It's something that day by day I, I seek the Lord's grace, try to, to always focus at least a part of the day on that, how good it is to know Jesus Christ and, and salvation in and through him. That it would, it's absurd to, to not believe in him, to not trust in him. But of course, that's not necessarily normal in today's world, is it? Most people probably would say it seems absurd or crazy to believe in Jesus Christ. What, what do you gain from it or how can you be sure? Well, I was thinking about that this week and I believe that there are uh, some reasons. I was thinking about that relative to Matthew chapter 1. And there are some reasons why uh, I've arrived at this place in my life to where I can say, you know, uh, it is supremely wise and it makes perfect sense to believe in Jesus Christ. One of the reasons is that I've seen faith put on display in my life. There have been people who have shown me what it's like to believe and to trust in Christ and to live in light of that. And that it's really not a way that, it's not something that you would live your life as and say, well, that's crazy, right, to give your life to Christ. I've seen it and I've respected it in other people. 
And I've also come to the realization over the years that there is a supreme value in what Jesus Christ gives to me that over the years uh, I've had impressed upon my heart in various ways that truly to have Christ, if you were to even have nothing else, you would have enough. That what Christ offers to us in his salvation, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and communion with God, there's a, there's a supremacy of value to that, that nothing else can compare with it. And then lastly, uh, over the years of my life, I have experienced the fact that God keeps his word, that what he says is reliable, that he keeps his promises and he fulfills his promises. So I've seen faith put on display by saints and followers of Christ much better than myself, and I've, I've seen that it's a reasonable way to live. I've come to see and to know that what Christ offers to us is supremely valuable, that he gives us a salvation that cannot be equaled by anything or anyone else. And I've come to see over the years that God keeps his word. It's reliable. Thus, I can freely embrace Jesus Christ and all that he gives to me, knowing that God will work out his purposes because of his sovereignty. In this passage, we see something like that. In the Gospel of Matthew, faith is always in the background. That's why this gospel was written to believe in Jesus Christ, to place him before us, and to say, Here is the Lord, here is the Savior. Embrace him by faith. We see Joseph put faith on display for us in this passage. Joseph, shown to be a faithful man. He believes the word of God and he acts in accordance with it. Faith is also commended to us as we're reminded of the kind of salvation Jesus Christ gives to us. He will save his people from their sins. And then the the theme of fulfilled prophecy shows us that God keeps his word. He fulfills his promises and thus we can have confidence to embrace all that God says in his word, chiefly among them the Savior. So let's think about all of those things together. The example of faith, the commendation of faith's value, and the confidence of faith uh, as God keeps his word. First we look at Joseph who's a righteous man and a royal heir. He's shown uh, to be a righteous man and he is also a son of of David. We considered that through the genealogy last week. This is really Joseph's family line in Matthew chapter 1. It is a, a royal bloodline. It is even many, many of those names in there are kings and they ruled over God's people. Many of those names could have been kings if the kingdom had not fallen apart. But we considered that genealogy and said this, is, this tells us something about the kingdom that Jesus is going to build. A kingdom that is going to be known as a kingdom that brings in people of all kinds of backgrounds. One commentator says this about the, the genealogy of Matthew. Over against all slander, Matthew shows by means of this family tree that Jesus is indeed the legitimate seed of David. The genealogy contains the names of various kinds of individuals, women as well as men, pagans by birth as well as Jews, those who did what was good in the eyes of the Lord and those who did not. Jesus Christ has significance not only for Jews but for the entire human race and all its classes, categories, and subdivisions. He is truly the Savior of the world, the one who saves all who, by sovereign grace, place their trust in him. But there's a twist in the genealogy, isn't there? Jesus is not the biological son of Joseph. He is born of a virgin. Mary, his mother, was a virgin. 
and yet conceived and bore Jesus. And so this passage focuses on how Joseph comes to make Jesus his own. He adopts him, and then Jesus gains a legal standing as a son of David, as a righteous heir. Of course, uh, he is fully qualified to the throne or to any throne. He's the God-man. He's the king of kings. But Matthew presents him as the king of Israel, and we get that story here. How did Joseph come to make Jesus Christ his son, his adopted son? Well, we have the hurdle that's preventing that right from the beginning of this passage. Mary and Joseph have not yet consummated their engagement and their marriage. You probably have all heard in various Christmas time sermons, betrothal back then was a little bit thicker, a little more serious than engagement now, usually cemented by a vow, but it still was not fully marriage. They did not live together. They did not enjoy uh, the physical consummation of a marriage sexually. But to break off betrothal was a form of divorce. That's, that's how it went in God's people. And so we notice the very solemn nature of betrothal and of divorce. We read that Joseph becomes aware of the fact that Mary is pregnant. We do not read that Mary told Joseph after the angel came and visited her. We have that account in Luke chapter 1. We don't read that Mary comes and tells Joseph, so, but nevertheless, he becomes aware of it. Becomes aware of it possibly naturally. He sees Mary after a while, knows what is going on. He knows that this has not come about by him, And so he concludes naturally, comes to a natural conclusion, not a supernatural one, that Mary has been unfaithful. This is, as I said, something that you would sort of naturally conclude. I remember um, during the summertime when we had, I think our first church service all back together was at the end of May. We were outside in the parking lot. You all remember that? And that was a pretty crazy day, a sad day, because later that afternoon and evening, there was all that rioting and looting that happened in Chicago and surrounding areas. I remember the following day of a high school classmate who uh, has a garbage route somewhere uh, in and around here, the south side of the city, and he was posting pictures of the kind of garbage that he was picking up. And one Uh, one picture stuck in my mind. He snapped a picture of an ATM machine that someone had just plopped at the end of their driveway and and expected the garbage truck to just sort of take it away. Now, of course, we don't have all of the evidence that we could in that instance, but it would be natural to conclude that that person is probably in possession of some pretty fresh cash that is not actually theirs. It's sort of astounding how brazen an act it was. And we come to those kinds of natural conclusions all of the time. And sadly, because Joseph doesn't have all of the information that he needs, sadly, but not unexpectedly, he's concluded that Mary has committed a great sin. And betrothed women who were found to be with child were considered to have committed adultery. They were considered part of a marriage in that sense. You deal with it because it was um, adultery. Joseph then has two options. He can take public and legal action against Mary, which would be very uh, disgraceful for her. At one time, Deuteronomy tells us, such an instance would have called for death by stoning for the women. At the time of, of Jesus' birth, it, it, that was not commonly practiced. But that's one option. Or he can quietly give her a certificate of divorce. We read that he does not desire to put Mary to open shame. Most Christian commentators pick up on that. And they say, here is an example of the righteousness 
of Joseph. He's kind-hearted. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's forgiving. He's wanting to fulfill his role of husband, even in the midst of this very difficult situation. As we're going to see later in this passage, there's something going on here with the kinds of godly qualities that Joseph is showing forth that teaches us something about the home in which Jesus was raised. The righteous God-man being raised in the home of a father who shows forth these qualities of God, who is compassionate, who is slow to anger. Joseph opts for this quiet route, but it seems like he's still even having trouble uh, putting that into action. Because the next verse says, while he considered this, in other words, he's still mulling it over in his mind, is this something that I actually have to do to send Mary away? It seems like, It's not even something that he wants to do in that instance. Mary knows where the baby has come from. You remember Luke chapter 1, the angel comes to Mary, even before she's pregnant. He says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever." And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary shows faith in God's word. Now it's Joseph's turn to receive this special revelation from God and to believe in it, to trust in it, to trust what he has been told, even if it may be difficult from a human standpoint to believe. While he was considering this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. There we have another clue that Joseph didn't even really want to send her away by divorcing her. The angel says, do not be afraid. In other words, it's okay to take Mary home as your wife. This is a word from the Lord. So how do we see Joseph respond? There's no fussing. There's no questioning. From what we get in the text, he rises from this dream. He goes to take Mary in in the way that he was instructed. Something that's never happened before. Someone born of a virgin. And yet he believes the word of the Lord and he acts in accordance with it. A beautiful picture of faith put on display for us. It makes us think perhaps, think where else in scripture do we see something like this? Well, what about Noah? There There had never been a flood to cover the earth. Genesis tells us there had never even been a rain like that. And Noah takes years and years and years, decades, building this enormous ark. Why? Because he believed the word of God. Something that had never happened before. But he believed. And he acted in accordance with it. Joseph does everything in a righteous way as it's presented to us. He even waits until after the baby is born to consummate the marriage. This passage, it does not say so explicitly, but we have have every reason to conclude in this passage that after Jesus was born, 
Joseph and Mary knew each other as husband and wife, and it was through Mary that other children would have been born into this family, siblings of Jesus. For instance, James, who goes on to write uh, a book in the New Testament. This, of course, goes against the teaching, the Catholic Church, of, of Mary's perpetual virginity. We can't dive into that today, but uh, suffice it to say, this passage is very good evidence against it. But in terms of Joseph's faith and his faith-filled obedience, what do we see? We see a righteousness that's exemplified in this son of David, the legal father of Jesus, Jesus raised in the home of a righteous son of David, and he will become the ultimate consummation of a righteous son of David. Joseph may have been an ordinary carpenter, but he shows extraordinary courage appointed by God for this great work. We see Joseph's action all throughout the first couple of chapters. There's a, there's a focus on Joseph in Matthew 1 and 2. He takes Mary in. He leads them. Uh, they flee to Egypt under Joseph's direction. They come out of Egypt under Joseph's direction. He shows us the picture of how to live in faith. Just like Mary accepting God's word in Luke's gospel, acting accordingly, so we see Joseph do so here. What does it look like to live with faith, to have faith and to live with faith? It looks like aligning your life with the truth that you say you believe. If you truly believe it, your life will in some way, imperfectly certainly, but it will in some way align with the truth that you say you believe. If Joseph said he believed the word of God, but then sort of kept Mary at an arm's length, I'm just going to see how this goes. Let me see what this baby's like. Let me see how it all unfolds. Will that be living in faith? No. But Joseph immediately obeys God, brings his life into alignment with the word of God and the promises of God, and it puts faith on display for us. What does it look like to have faith? Something like Joseph, believing God's word and aligning your life with it. So there we have faith put on display. Secondly, we see the supremacy of salvation in Christ. We have Jesus, who's a sovereign savior from sin. He's a sovereign savior from sin. Joseph is told, call this baby Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There's that principle that we see all throughout scripture that many of the things that we call God align with some kind of promise that he gives to us, a promise about who he is. We call him savior because he saves. We call him keeper because he keeps. We call him Lord because he rules and he reigns. We call him Jehovah Jireh because he is the God who provides. He sees to our every need. Call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, Yeshua, means Yahweh saves. Jesus is the culmination the embodiment, the enfleshment of what we see in Scripture that God alone saves. Salvation is the work of God. Jesus is the literal embodiment of that truth and of that promise. And we see it all throughout Scripture. Isaiah 12, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. 
Psalm 62, for God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation. God takes initiative, and in in Christ, in the birth of Christ, we see God taking that initiative that we cannot save ourselves. God saves, and he alone saves, and he saves sovereignly by his power. But what are we saved from? What are we saved from? Some people would say the best salvation that we can have in this life would be saved from the travails and valleys of this life. Saved from sickness. Saved from financial difficulties. Saved from other kinds of strife or pain. There are all kinds of man-made salvations out there. We need to save the world from poverty, from racism, from identity crisis, from bigotry. All kinds of things promised to us. But all things, all problems in this world lead back to one foundational source. Sin. Sin is the ultimate problem. And only dealing with the problem on that level can bring any lasting comfort. And that's why Jesus and the salvation that he gives to us is supreme. Above all others, above all other false gospels, above all other empty promises, his alone will stand the test of time. Because only in Christ are we saved from our sin. New Testament scholar William Hendrickson says this. He says, it is ever God, God alone, who in and through his son saves his people. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, in physical strength and knowledge and reputation and prestige and position, magnificent and impressive machinery, influential friends and intrepid generals. None of these, whether operating singly or in conjunction with all the others, is able to deliver man from his chief enemy, the foe that is little by little destroying his very heart, namely sin, or as here sins, those of thought, word, and deed, of omission, commission, and inner disposition. All those various ways in which man misses the mark, God's glory. It takes no less than the atoning death of Jesus and the sanctifying power of his spirit to cleanse hearts and lives. It's the only way that we will have salvation. Placing trust in this Savior who saves his people from their sins. Who came to seek and to save the lost. Who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He saves us from our sin. To be saved from something entails that we are also saved for something. Saved from our sin, but also saved for something. What are we saved for? God doesn't just wash our sins away, declare us righteous, and then just kind of set us in an empty field. We are saved for something. And we are saved for chiefly two things. God's glory and our joy. To be saved from sin means that you are saved for God's glory and your joy. God loves to glorify his name in and through his servants, and he loves to give us the satisfaction that can only be found in him. The kinds of things that we experience in this life are peace of conscience, assurance of God's love, the victories over sin that we will experience by the power of the Spirit as we mortify the deeds of the flesh and grow in our conviction of God's love and assurance towards us. All of those things can be culminate or can be summarized under the umbrella of God's glory and our joy. God grows us by his grace. We glorify him more. As we glorify him more, we learn to love his glory and we take more joy in it. One author summarizes it this way. Since God's glory is the highest good possible, 
then we will find our greatest joy in the revelation and proclamation of that glory. For there is nothing greater in all the world than God's glory. And therefore, nothing will bring us greater joy. God advances his glory. As he advances his glory, he increases our joy. And those two things are joined together. Psalm 105, verse 3. Glory in his holy name, and let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Advance his glory, and rejoice in him. So the supremacy of Christ and his salvation is set before us. We're saved from our sin. We're saved for God's glory and our joy. And then this theme of prophecy fulfilled is meant to fill us with confidence and conviction that God keeps his promises. He keeps his word. His word never fails in the midst of human circumstances that make us doubt he could fulfill them. They never will. He will always fulfill his purposes. Matthew has a high view of prophecy here. It comes from the Lord, it says. God is the author of these prophecies, even though they're spoken through Isaiah. He refers back to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Something that was initially fulfilled in the days of King Ahaz, but is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. For he is what? God with us. Emmanuel, which is a transliteration of a Hebrew word, which is just the, the Hebrew word im, which is with, with the first common suffix, imanu. That's how you say with us in Hebrew, imanu. And then el is God, imanu, el, with us, God. That is who Jesus is. Now, the theme, God with us, especially around Christmas time, it makes us feel really warm and fuzzy. But we need to remember to keep in mind, God with us is an astounding truth to think that God, Jesus is true God. He's no less God than any other person in the Godhead. God could be with us who are wretched and wicked sinners. In the context of Matthew, to say that God with us means that he is with all of these He comes to the sick to heal them. He comes to the demon-possessed to set them free. He comes to the the poor in spirit to bless them. The care-ridden to rid them of care. The judgmental to warn them. The lepers to cleanse them. The diseased to cure them. The hungry to feed them. The handicapped to restore them. And finally, the lost, the sinful, to seek and to save them. To give his life as a ransom for them. Jesus fulfills this promise That God is with us. And that is meant to make us stand in awe. That he came to live and to dwell and to walk with sinners. To touch sinners. A God who is of purer eyes than to look upon sin, we read in the Old Testament. And yet, because of his great love and compassion and mercy, he walks among us. God with us, it should make us feel joyful, fuzzy in some sense. But never forget That Jesus Christ, the God-man, walked side by side with sinners who, compared to his righteousness, were so rebellious, so sinful, so awful, and yet he loved them, and he saved them, and he saves us. And so that theme of prophecies fulfilled fills us with confidence. Remember the the, the catechism on faith. What is faith? Ultimately, it, it is a confidence that I'm saved from sin, that God's word is true. That he will fulfill his purposes in this world and in and through me. Thus I can freely embrace Jesus Christ. That's what Matthew is saying. He was prophesied. Jesus was prophesied to come. And he came. And he fulfilled this work. And he paid the price for sin. And salvation is offered. Thus you can place all of your confidence in him. 
and live with free obedience to him out of gratitude to God. Faith put on display in the example of Joseph in reminding us of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. What salvation ought you to seek? This salvation being saved from your sin for it's the only one that will stand the test of time. It's the only one that will carry you through death into eternal life and be filled with confidence. Why? Because it is the God of Scripture who places this salvation before us. The God who never breaks his word, who never breaks his promises, who fulfills all that he says, and who always uh, lives to advance his glory and our joy. May we be filled with the faith to embrace Christ, to live for him, to live righteously like the example that we see in Joseph, to be filled with confidence that trusting in him will mean that we will never be forsaken. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we humbly come before you. We ask that you would teach us what we do not know, that you would uh, make us what we are not yet, and that you would give us what we need. All for your Son's sake and all for your glory. Fill us with the joy of your salvation once again. Thank you for this season of the year. Uh, May we be reminded through it that you are the Lord of time. All things exist in in your grip. Each and every moment is yours. Each and every day that we have is an opportunity uh, to render it back unto you as an act of worship and joy-filled obedience. Cleanse us of sin. Renew us for the week week ahead. Keep us from temptation. Anything that would cause us to fall, place the supremacy of salvation before us. And fill us with the Spirit, fill our lives with the fruit of the Spirit, uh, that we may live in accordance with all the things you say in your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, let's stand together.